You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Isabel Allende. This program originally aired in 2010. This is Word of Mouth on New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, we invite you to sit back and enjoy a lively conversation with Isabel Allende, recorded live from the Writers on a New England stage series. Allende is the best-selling Latin American author in the world. Beginning with her 1982 debut, House of the Spirits, Ms. Allende's novels have been praised for their historical accuracy, their emotional and sensual texture, along with what critics call magical realism. She has written 17 more books, including novels, memoirs, and young adult stories, since she was forced to leave her native Chile. She and her family fled after a military coup toppled the presidency of her father's cousin, Salvador Allende. She now lives and writes in California. Isabel Allende joined an enthusiastic audience at the Music Hall of Portsmouth to read from her new novel, Island Beneath the Sea, her first novel in four years. It's set in the late 18th century in the French colony that would become Haiti after a bloody revolution. The story's heroine, a slave named Zarite, would later escape to New Orleans. Isabel Allende came on stage as the house band Dreadnought played. Thank you, thank you. I feel like a celebrity, thanks. Thanks. I wish I had this kind of audience all the time. This book, Island Beneath the Sea, I wasn't planning to write it. I was planning something quite different. Uh, I went to New Orleans in 2003, before Katrina, uh, to research for a book that I was writing about Zorro, the, you know, the California character with the mask and the sword. And uh, I had him and the villain in Spain. I needed to get them to California, but the villain needed to get there before. So I needed to get Zorro stopped somewhere, so the Pirates of the Caribbean kidnapped him, and he ended up in New Orleans. So I had to go to the city to research. And I just fell in love with the city, with the French flavor, the cuisine, the voodoo, the, the music, the spirit of the city. And I thought, well, one day I will write a book about this city. And I thought of the Pirates of the Caribbean. But unfortunately, Hollywood got the idea. And, and you know what happened. So I couldn't write that book. But I had that little seed inside, you know, I, one day I will do it. And I started researching about the city, and I realized that much of the French flavor came from 10,000 refugees that fled the slave revolt in what is today Haiti and was then the richest French colony in the world, Saint-Domingue. The slaves, there were half a million slaves, and a group of white people, 20,000 whites and 14,000 Afranchi people of color that were free, and they controlled half a million people whose life expectancy when they were in the fields was from four to six years. I mean, they were exploited to death. Every, every year, uh, they would have to bring in 20 to 30,000 new people, new slaves, to replace the ones that died. The treatment was awful. And so the only thing they could do was either escape or die. And they believed strongly that um, when they died, their souls would go to the island beneath the sea, Guinea, paradise. And um, that's where the title of the book comes from. And when they finally, the, the rebellion sort of exploded because it was really an explosion in one night. 
and the slaves everywhere uh, rebelled, Napoleon sent his troops, 30,000 men. These troops had defeated Europe, and they couldn't against these people who were fighting back practically naked. And they believed, the, the enslaved people believed, that the souls of the dead were fighting with them. And for every man that was there with a machete or a knife or a whip against the cannons of Napoleon, there were 10,000 souls that had come from the island beneath the sea to fight with them. Um, so I'm going, in, in my book, my protagonist is called Zarite Sedella, and she's a slave. The, the book begins when she's nine years old, and she's sold to a white planter, to lose Valmorin, who is not really a villain. He is, um, he's an enlightened man for the time. He was French. In France, um, uh, slavery had been abolished, not in the colonies, though. And, um, and so he comes to, to, to Saint-Domingue because his father is sick, and his father is running the plantation, and he ends up stranded there, and then slowly... His father dies. He has to be in charge of the plantation. Everything changes. Himself, his ideas, his emotions. So the book is about the relationships between the enslaved people and the masters, between Europe and the colonies, what was happening in the world, what happened within the families. The relationships were very complex because enslaved people were not people. They were property. So, for example... Rape was not a crime if the woman was not white. So it was only a crime if the woman was white. Otherwise, there was no, no fault. You could rape a woman of color and there were no consequences. In the same way, incest was considered incest if both people involved were white. Otherwise, it didn't matter. When I researched all this, it was just fascinating, so complex, so layered. I learned a lot, and I got sick with some of the stuff I learned. The, the book is um, told in two voices, my own voice, in which I tell whatever I researched, and then the voice of Zarite, my protagonist. And I can see her, and I want you to imagine her. She's completely different from me. I don't know where she came from. She's this tall, regal, beautiful woman, African woman, with very short hair, a long neck, long hands, high cheekbones, slanted eyes, a deep voice, very self-contained passionate about her freedom and about her children and about the love she has for the man she loves. She's just a, one of those characters that totally possessed me, in a way. And so part of the story is told by her and part of the story is told by me. I'm going to read the first part is what happened that night when the revolt started. And it is told by her. Boake Man lies to the north. It's an enormous forest, a place of crossroads and sacred trees, where live the spirits of nature and of dead slaves who have not found their way to Guinea, to the island beneath the sea. That night, other spirits also came prepared to fight because they were summoned. There was an army of hundreds of thousands of spirits fighting alongside the blacks, and that was why finally the whites were defeated. Everyone is in agreement about that, even the French soldiers. Even they believe because they felt the spirit's fury. My master, who did not believe in anything he did not understand, and as he understood very little, believed in nothing, 
was also convinced that the dead aided the rebels. That explained how they could defeat the best army of Europe, the army of Napoleon. The meeting of the slaves in Boakeiman occurred on a night hot, wet from the sweat of men and of the earth. How was the news passed? The drums carried the message. The sound of the drums travels farther and faster than the roar of a storm, and all the people knew its language. Slaves came from the plantations in the north, and thousands of maroons descended from the mountains. Gambo arrived with a group of Sambabuk men, a giant who inspired double respect for being a hungan and a war chief. In the year and a half he had been free, Gambo had grown to a man's size. He had broad shoulders and tiring legs and a machete for killing. He had won Bookman's trust. He slipped onto plantations to steal food, tools, weapons, and animals, but he had never come to Saint-Lazare to see me. During that time, my need to be with Gambo was burning me like hot coals. There is no remedy for this kind of love. I tell this with shame. Sometimes, when I lay with my master, I imagined I was with Gambo. I bit my lips to hold back his name, and in the darkness, behind my closed eyes, pretended that the white man's smell of alcohol was the green grass breath of Gambo, who had not yet rotted his teeth by eating bad fish, and that the heavy, hairy, panting man atop me was Gambo, Slim and agile, his young flesh crisscrossed with scars, his sweet lips, his curious tongue, his whispering voice. People traveled for hours and hours to reach Boakeiman, and they all arrived in the dark of night. The forest was filled, men and women gliding through the trees in total silence, blended with the dead and the shadows. But when they felt the vibration of the first drums on their feet, they were energized. They pick up their pace, speaking in whispers, and then shouts. They greeted one another. They gave their names. A necklace of fires and torches lighted the clearing. The men had prepared the sacred potomiton, a tall, thick tree trunk, because the road for the loas, the gods, had to be wide. A long line of girls dressed in white arrived escorting Tante Rose, also all in white, carrying their song for the ceremony. The drums in the summer circle were calling, tam, tam, tam. Bookman took the word to invoke the supreme god, Papa Bon Dieu, and to ask that he lead them to victory. Hear the voice of freedom that sings in our hearts, he shouted and the slaves answered with a clamor that shook the land. This is how they told it. The drums began to talk and answer to set the rhythm for the ceremony. The girls danced around and they sang, calling for the loas, first leg bar, as is always done, then the rest, one by one. The drums grew faster and the whole forest throbbed from the deepest roots to the most remote stars. Then Ogun, the spirit of war, the god of weapons, aggressive, irritable, dangerous, descended and mounted Tantros. Everyone saw the transformation. The old woman doubled her size and with her eyes rolled back, made an astounding leap and landed nearly 10 feet away 
one of the fires. From Ogun's mouth came a bellow of thunder, and the loa danced, rising up from the ground, falling and bouncing back like a ball. Two men approached, the most courageous, to give the loa sugar to calm him, but Tant Ros possessed, picked them up like rag dolls, and threw them far. The loa had come to give a message of war and justice and blood. Tant Ros, mounted by Ogun, picked up a red hot coal, placed it in her mouth, whirled completely about, sucking fire, and then spit it out without burning her lips. Then she took a large knife, went to the sacrificial black pig tied to a tree, and with a warrior's arm cut its throat with a single slash, severing the thick head from the trunk and soaking herself in blood. By then, many followers had been mounted by the loas, and the forest had filled with loas and spirits, mixed in with humans, all scrambled together, singing, dancing, leaping, and rolling to the beat of the drums, walking on burning coals, licking red-hot knife blades, and eating handfuls of hot chilies. The night air was charged, as it is during a terrible storm, but not a breeze stirred. Much later, when the huge crowd was shaking like a single person, Ogun roared to impose silence. The drums immediately stilled, and all those who were possessed, except Tant Rose, were again themselves, and the loas retired to the tops of the trees. Ogun lifted the ascent toward the sky, and the voice of the most powerful loa issued from Tant Rose's mouth, to demand the end of slavery, to call for a total rebellion, and to name the chiefs, Bougmain, Jean-François, Jeannot, Boisseau, Célestin, and several others. That was the beginning of the revolution. And now it's my voice talking. In the summer of the following year, one night, Zarité suddenly waked with a firm hand over her mouth. She thought it was finally the attack on the plantation they had feared for so long and prayed that death would be quick, at least for the children, Maurice and Rosette, sleeping beside her. She waited without trying to defend herself to keep from waking the children and also from the remote possibility that it was all a nightmare until she could make out a figure bending over her in the light reflected from the patio torches. She did not recognize Cambo because the boy <clears throat> had changed in the year and a half they had been separated. But then he whispered her name, Zarite, and she felt a flash in her breast, not of terror, but joy. She raised her hands to pull him to her and felt the metal of the knife he held between his teeth. She took it from him, and he, with a moan, dropped down upon the body that shifted to receive him. Gambo's lips sought hers with a thirst stored up during a long absence. She opened to him, but she remembered the children she had for a moment forgotten and pushed him away. Come with me, she whispered. They got up with care. Gambo recovered his knife, and Sarite closed the mosquito netting to protect the children. Feeling her way, she led him to the mad woman's room on the other side of the house, empty since her death. Arms around each other, they fell upon the mattress, smelling of moisture and abandon, and made love in the darkness, in total silence, choked with unspoken words. 
During his absence, Campbell had found relief with other women in the, campus, in the camps, but he had not been able to sate his appetite for unsatisfied love. He was 17 years old and lived in flames of a persistent desire for Sarite, imagining her at every instant of repose and in every pause in battle and in every misty dawn in the millinery canyons of the Indian chiefs, where he had so many times stood guard. He remembered her tall, abounding, generous, but now she was smaller than he, and her breasts, which then seemed large, fit easily into his hands. Sarite straddled him, bending down to cover his face with kisses, lick his ears, caress him. The air in the room became saturated with the fragrance of lovemaking, with the prudent violence of pleasure, and with smothered moans, silence, laughter, and happy kisses. Perhaps they did nothing they had not done with others, but it is very different to make love loving. Exhausting with happiness, they fell into sleep together in a knot of arms and legs, stunned by the heat of that July night. Gambo waked after a few minutes, frightened for having let down his guard, but when he heard the abandoned woman purring in her sleep, he gave himself time to lightly run his hand over her, noticing the changes in her body. When he left, she had been misshapen with child. Her breasts still held milk, but they were less firm. Her waist seemed very slim, but he did not remember how it had been before her pregnancy. Her belly, her hips, her buttocks, her thighs were pure opulence and smoothness. Zarite's scent had also changed. She no longer smelled of soap, but of milk. And in that moment, she was imbued with their blended odors. Zarite stretched with a long, satisfied sigh. She was dreaming of Gambo, and it took her an instant to realize that they were actually together, and she did not have to imagine him. I came to look for you, Zarite. It's time for us to go, Gambo whispered. He explained that he had not been able to come earlier because he didn't have anywhere to take her, but now he could not wait any longer. He didn't know if the whites would be able to crush the rebellion, but they would have to kill the last Negro before they could proclaim victory. None of the rebels was prepared to be a slave again. Death was on the loose and lying in wait across the island. All he could offer was a hard life, but she would not be sorry because once you taste freedom, you can never turn back. He felt hot tears on Tete's face. I can't leave the children, Gambo, she told him. We will take my son with us, he replied. She's a girl. Her name is Rosette, and she isn't your daughter. She's the daughter of the master. Gambo sat up surprised. In that year and a half thinking about his son, a black boy, the thought that the baby could be a mulatto daughter of the master had never crossed his mind. We can't take Maurice because he's white, not Rosette, for she's too small to survive hardship, Tete explained. You have to come with me, Sarite, and it has to be tonight. Tomorrow will be too late. These are the white man's children. Forget them. Think of us and the children we will have. Think of freedom. Why do you say that tomorrow will be too late? She asked, wiping away tears with the back of her hand. Because the plantation will be attacked. It is the last one left. All the rest have been destroyed. 
Then she understood the magnitude of what Gambo was asking. It was much more than leaving the children. It was to abandon them to a horrible fate. She turned to him with an anger as intense as the passion of minutes before. She would never leave them, not for him and not for freedom. Gambo held her tight against his chest as if he meant to pick her up and carry her. He told her that Maurice was lost at any rate, but in the camp they would accept Rosette as long as she was not too light-skinned. Neither of them would survive among the rebels, Gambo. The only way to save them is for the master to take them. I'm sure he will protect Maurice with his life, but not Rosette. There is no time for that. The master is already a corpse, Sarite, he replied. If he dies, the children will die too. We have to take all three away from San Lazar before dawn. If you don't want to help me, I will do it alone, she decided, pulling on her shift in the darkness. Gambo realized that he could not force her to go with him, and neither could he leave her. Do you think the white man will agree to this? He finally asked. What choice does he have? If he stays, he and Maurice will be disemboweled. Not only will he accept, he will pay a good price. Wait for me here. And this is Sarite speaking now. My body was hot and moist, my face swollen with kisses and tears, and my skin scented with what I had done with Gambo, but I didn't care. In the corridor, I lighted one of the oil lamps, went to the master's room and entered without knocking, something I had never done before. I found him limp with liquor, lying on his back, his mouth open with a thread of saliva down his chin. He had a two-day beard and his pale hair was wild. Suddenly, all the repulsion I felt for him seized me and I thought I was going to vomit. My presence and the light took an instant to penetrate the fog of the cognac in his brain. He waked with a cry and with one quick move pulled out the pistol he had beneath his pillow. When he recognized me, he lowered the gun but did not put it away. What is it, Tete? He said with a tone of rebuke and jumped out of the bed. I have come to propose something to you, master, I told him. My voice did not tremble, nor did the lamp in my hand. He didn't ask me why I had wakened him in the middle of the night. He knew it had to be something very serious. He sat on the edge of the bed with the pistol on his knees, as I explained that within hours rebels would attack the plantation. It was useless to alert the overseer. It would take an army to hold them back. Just as everywhere else, his slaves would join the attackers. There would be a slaughter and a fire, and that was why we had to flee immediately with the children, or tomorrow we would be dead. And that would be the good fate. Worse would be to be dying slowly in horrible pain. How do you know? he asked. One of your slaves who escaped more than a year ago came back to warn me, and he's going to lead us because alone we would never reach Le Cap. The region is in the hands of the rebels. Who is he? He asked with, while he hurriedly threw on some clothes. His name is Gambo, and he is my lover. He slapped me so hard that I was dazed. But when he started to hit me again, I grabbed his wrist with a strength I didn't know I had. Up to that very moment, I had never looked him in the eye, and I didn't know that he had light-colored eyes like a cloudy sky. We are going to try to save you and Maurice, 
but the price will be my freedom, Agosets, I told him, enunciating every word very clearly so he would understand. He dug his fingers into my arms, and his face was menacingly close to mine. He ground his teeth as he cursed me. His eyes were bulging with rage. A long, eternal moment passed. I did not drop my eyes. At last, he sat back down with his head in his hands, defeated. Very well, you will have what you ask. Come, hurry, get dressed and get the children ready. Where is the slave? He asked. He isn't a slave any longer. I will call him, but first you write me the paper that will free Rosette and me. Without another word, he sat down at his desk, took a piece of paper, and hurriedly wrote, dried the ink with talc, blew on it, then imprinted his ring on the sealing wax, as I had always seen him do with important documents. He read it to me aloud, since I couldn't read. My throat clutched, and my heart began to pound in my chest. That sheet of paper had the power to change my daughter's life and mine. I folded it four times and put it in the little pouch I always wore around my neck beneath my blouse. Thank you very much. Isabel Allende, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Thanks. That reading was very beautiful, central to the, the story. And what I found so interesting about uh, your main character, Zarete, is that she moves between slavery and freedom. You know, she's this slave. You describe that moment when she becomes free. Um, but even after that, she remains very intimately connected with Valmorin, the former master, and all the other people who brought her to where she is. What I wonder is when or how did she come into your mind as you were writing this? You know, I researched for four years for this book, and when I had been, when I had researched already for two years, I thought I had all the material, I was ready to write the book. I, I, I write all my, I start all my books on January 8th. And, um, <laughs> well, I, if I didn't have a date to start, I would be procrastinating forever. <laughs> so that's why I have a date to start. But and, there is more of a story behind that, and we yeah, will get well, to but it. That's very doesn't good. Matter. Uh, in any case, I was ready to start the book, I thought, and I just couldn't because I didn't have Sarite. And in, in the meantime, I wrote um, a, a memoir called The Sum of Our Days, while I kept on researching and waiting for the moment when I would really feel, feel the voice inside. Because the most important thing for, for a book is the tone, is the voice that will tell the story. And then suddenly one day, I don't know if I was asleep or I was meditating or a ghost really came to my house. I saw her, this splendid woman. And I just knew that it was her. She came with a voice, with a name, dressed in white. She was there and I could write the book. You actually saw her? I saw her. I could, I, sometimes I feel she's standing here, you know, sort of freaky, the whole thing. And... Uh, <laughs> 
she couldn't be more, more different than me. I mean, she's just, I have nothing in common with her except the feelings. I know what it is to, this obsession with independence and freedom and this desire to have your destiny in your hands. I know what it is to lose a child, to love your children more than freedom, more than anything. What it is to fall in love and be passionate about love. And I have very raunchy scenes in, in the book <laughs> that um, actually the one I read was heavily censored um, because I had the bad idea of reading it in the National Cathedral in Washington and people were sort of horrified and my daughter-in-law who is traveling with me said, uh-uh, <laughs> it doesn't work, there are children in the audience. So it's heavily censored. But all that is not research or experience, it's just imagination. <laughs> <laughs> she loses so much in the course of this story, but she retains the capacity for love. Is that the fundamental driver that made her absolutely essential to telling this story? You couldn't tell the story until she emerged. Until she emerged, yeah. I think she, ha uh, first of all, she's very smart. She's very intelligent. She has sen a common sense. The master often takes her advice because she is very, very smart. And, and she's this passionate woman, full of love, of the love of life, the love of nature, the love of children. What is also very interesting is that relationships and people are never simple. In times of slavery, Relationships were very complex. I mean, there was incest and there was rape and there was brutality and abuse, power, impunity, but there was also affection. And there was a point when the white master should have liberated her. He, he even had signed the paper, but the paper had no value if it had not been ratified by a judge. And this is only in the middle of the book, so she thinks she's free because she has the paper, but she really is not. And... Uh, he owes her his life and the life of his child. And according to the black code, there was a code for all these things, um, she was entitled for, to have her freedom. But he didn't give her her freedom because he didn't want to lose her. He could never understand why she didn't love him or need him as he loved and needed her. You've got this great affection for Zarite. I have affection for everybody in the book except Cambrai, the overseer. I hate him. But, he was but a the very rest, mean man. He, he's just mean, you know. And, and what makes me mad is that he was a man of color too. So um, the, the brutality of the little guy when he has a little power and he exerts that power is terrible. And so I, I just despise him. And I wanted him dead. And I was planning some horrible death when they attacked the plantation. <laughs> And, and so I was planning this, they are going to impale him or something horrible. And then I thought, why am I going to put my readers through this? So I just had him shot. Merciful for a couple of good reasons. So writing is discovery. You said you did not actually start out deciding to write the book about Haiti and so forth. What ultimately made you decide that this time, this place, Haiti, New Orleans, the decades around 1800, 
were the right place to tell the story that did emerge. The time was fascinating. It was the turn of the 18th century, a time when the Western world was shaping to what it is now. It was a time of the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the colonies, the, the abolitionist movements, the encyclopedists, the intellectuals, the philosophers, science. It was a time of voyages, of discovery. So it was a fascinating time. And why Haiti? Because of the connection with New Orleans. And why slavery? Because it is the most incredible story, the only slave revolt in history that has succeeded and gave birth to this first Negro independent republic in the world. It was just an incredible story. It had all the elements. It had violence, passion, magic. It had voodoo. It had the nature. All the stuff I love in books. I didn't have to invent anything. It was given. Well, it is a historical novel. Slavery is at the center. And you actually describe something, and I wonder if it's true, that the very young children, uh, the slave children, being taken care of by slave caretakers, those caretakers would sometimes try to give them tetanus so that they would die and go to paradise, the island beneath the sea, without having to endure slavery. Where did you come across that? Is that this true? This is a historical fact. Actually, it came out in the research among the many, many horrible things that came out in the research. But don't worry, M much of it is not in the book. It's suggested, but not explicit. But in this case, I had to tell it, because um, the slaves were exploited to death. Their life expectancy in the plantation, in the fields, would be between four and six years. They would work 16, 18, 20 hours in the worst possible conditions. They were punished in the most horrible ways. And they didn't even reproduce much, because how could they? It was almost impossible. And not the caretakers, but the mothers. The babies were taken away from the mothers almost immediately. I think that they were allowed to carry the baby tied to the body to breastfeed for a couple of weeks. And then the babies were taken to a sort of, um, I don't know, a patio or someplace like that, where an old person who was usually a crippled old woman who could not work in the fields took care of the babies. And the mothers would often kill the babies because they didn't want them to have the kind of life that they had. And the way they did it is because, if, of course, if they killed the baby, it was property of the master. They would have been destroying property, so they would be killed and horribly, in a horrible way. Um, so in order to do it without the master knowing, they would insert a needle in the head before the bones closed. And that produced symptoms similar to tetanus, and they would die within hours or a couple of days. And the historical fact is that no white children died like that. It was a strange disease that only happened to black children. And now it's known that that is what happened. What was it like to do that sort of research? Awful. So that, it was just awful. But uh, your goal was to put yourself in the mind of a slave. You know, it, it was absolutely terrible. But it was more terrible to put myself in the mind and in the heart and in the life of the master. 
I think that the master, the overseer, the, the, the ones who have absolute power and impunity have their humanity tested constantly. And I am so lucky that that has never happened to me, that I have been never in that situation in which I can do whatever I want with another human being because I don't know what I would do. I'm probably something horrible because we have that capacity in all of us. But um, it, it was worse to be the master, actually. In the beginning of the book, Zarete tells about a childhood memory, and she's in the company of another slave. And she writes, or you wrote, and she says it. He invited me to lose myself in the music the way you do in a dream. Dance, dance, Zarete. The slave who dances is free while he is dancing. This seems to get at the gap between two worlds, the world of the physical reality, the world of power, and the world of the whip that the slaves have to endure. But there's the other world, the personal world, the spiritual world. And my sense is that a lot of the power in this novel comes from the gap between those two worlds. That's how I felt exactly that in order to understand what had happened, in order to be Sarite, and also to be the master, and to be each one of the characters, I had to have one foot in reality and one foot in the spiritual world. And what linked them were the drums, the music, the dance, the voodoo. There is something there that is so, so rich and so empowering that it's very hard to explain. There's a chapter in the book called The Punishment, in which she's in Cuba, they have fled Haiti, and they have landed in Cuba, and they are waiting to go to New Orleans. And she hears the drums, and she hears the drums, and she's called by the drums, and then her body changes, her mind changes, and she starts dancing, and the dance just transports her to another world. And I just can't feel that, that without that element that many reviewers have called magic realism, which isn't, it's reality also, I could have not written the book. Does music have that power for you? No, I don't. I'm deaf. I don't have any... <laughs> I can't play not even the radio. And um, we, I saw once an Australian movie called Ballroom Dancing or something like that. And when I saw those people dancing, I thought, this is what I want to do in my life. So I told my husband, who is a gringo like you, I... <laughs> I asked him, yeah, I asked him to, um, to give me for my birthday dancing classes. Okay, he said, ballroom dancing. And so um, we didn't want to be ridiculous in front of other people, so we took private dancing classes. And the instructor was this Scandinavian, 19 years old, tall. I mean, her legs came up to here. <laughs> and... She had a mini skirt and those uh, uh, stockings, you know, that they have a line in the back and, and stiletto heels. And so we get, and the first thing she says is, she, before she turns on the music, she says, the man leads. And I say, why? <laughs> and, and she said, well, I don't know why, but, but that's the way it is. And I said, no, I think we should take turns. Uh, one he and she didn't want that. So finally, I sat there for an hour. This was pretty expensive. And I sat there for an hour in a room surrounded with mirrors while uh, this woman was dancing with my husband. And, 
and Willie was just salivating. We had the worst fight in the world in the car afterwards. But I'm, I'm very disciplined, so I went back for a second class. That's impressive. The third class, I slapped her, and that was the end of it. <laughs> so I can't dance. That has to fall into the category of be careful what you wish for. Yeah. We've been getting some questions from the audience. You have stated here, and you've said this before, that you always begin a book on the same day of the year, every year, when you're going to start a book. Still true? Still true. We can get that out of the way. Why don't you explain it, though? Well, I started my first book on January 8, 1981, because my grandfather was dying in Chile. And I started a letter that evolved into my first novel, The House of the Spirits. It was a lucky book. So I have started, I started the second book on the same date for Kabbalah. And then my life got complicated. So now, out of discipline, I have to clear a few months in the calendar to sit down and write. And January 8th is a good day. Because it's after the holidays, it's winter, it's, it's a good day. It's also the birthday of Elvis Presley. I didn't know that. And I'm sure he appreciates yeah. it. He's alive somewhere, they say. On the island beneath the sea, no doubt. When you write... You have a very intense regimen. Tell us about that regimen. Tell us about the state of mind that you're putting yourself into. And please tell us the rituals that you use to put yourself there. Well, I start that on January 8th, so you can imagine what January 7th looks like in my life. I am a wreck. So I clean up the pool house where I work or for everything that has nothing to do with the book I'm going to write. And there I have all my research, my first editions, my dictionaries, my dog, my tea, and I light a candle. Always, every day when I start writing, I light a candle to bring in inspiration, spirits, for the mosquitoes too. And because it's the pool house, you know. And then I just allow a first sentence to sort of build up inside, and I don't think much about it because I have the idea that that first sentence will give the tone to the book. It's like a door that opens into a really dark space where I will go every day, sometimes 10, 12, 14 hours a day, with my little candle and bring light to the corners and maybe if I'm lucky, the characters will emerge slowly and tell me their stories. I have no idea what the story is about. Sometimes I have a character like Sarite, which is not fully formed. I know she's there, but her story is not there yet. I never have an outline. I have notes that I have taken, but I don't have an outline. And I don't know when the book is going to finish either. If I have a first draft, even if it's very raw, then I can get out. But before I have that, I don't, because all the threads are in my head, and I can't let go. It's a very intense process that my husband loves because he doesn't see me for a long time. If I want to scare him, really, I tell him that I'm going to retire. 
Oh, my God. <laughs> I doubt that. Another question from the audience. You once said that you became a writer because it was the only job for someone who was a consummate liar. Yeah, that's true. Okay. When I was a journalist, I was a lousy journalist. I couldn't be objective. I lied all the time, and if I didn't have a story, I made it up. Well, you know, journalists do that all the time, but they are not caught. And uh, I think that now in, in, in literature, I'm free to do whatever I want. It's just good. It's better. <laughs> and now that I'm, you know, I was always called a liar. I'm punished for being a liar when I was a child. Now that I can make a living out of these lies, I am a narrator. <laughs> but there's a serious side because through these lies, and Salman Rushdie once said tongue-in-cheek, what's the point of telling stories that aren't even true? <laughs> That's good. But you feel that you get at the truth. I think that fiction often gets to the point and to the truth more than history books, more than anything, because it talks about relationships and sentiments and about the voices of the little people. And it, uh, I, I, I believe that what I, when I'm writing, that if there is no uh, basic essential truth in what I'm telling, the story doesn't have any bones. It collapses. It just doesn't work. Um, so in all my stories and in all my writing, I feel that I'm telling something that may have happened, is happening, or will happen. And basically, the emotions are something that I can really feel in myself. It's my own experience, my own life. I believe there is great truth in everything that, that I write, even if it's a pack of lies. I think that there is, there is more truth, actually, in my fiction than in my memoirs. Because in my memoirs, I have to give the manuscript to the other people that I mention in the book, and everybody has a different version, and they want to look good. So at the end, it comes out fluff. You mentioned, um, in passing, magical realism. And um, in a way, I feel a little bit sorry for Latin American writers, because I think they live under the shadow Oh, magical realism, right? Oh, it's, it's a, they can write anything, but somebody's going to be out there, it's going to pounce on them and say, are you or are you not using magical realism? Do you feel that way? Yes, there's a review in the New York Times book review accusing me of not using enough magic realism in this novel, and in the last one, accusing me of using too much. So you can never please everybody. But also, it's not magic realism, it's just accepting that we don't know anything, that we don't control much, that life is very mysterious, and it's present in literature all over the world, not only in Latin America. Read Toni Morrison. Can you help us here, if we're going to talk about magical realism, what does the term mean to you? And, and when do you actually sort of find it useful to use it as a writing device? In this book, people think that voodoo is magic realism. It's always magic realism or fantasy or superstition when it's somebody else's beliefs. When it's your belief, then it's religion. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that in this book, there is no magic realism. There are just the fact that 
the enslaved people in this colony really believed that the spirits were with them. And that's the belief. There's a young baby that survives at the end of your novel, and he's named Justin for justice. Would you say that you're fundamentally an optimistic person? I'm a, real, a realistic person. I have lived 67 years. I look good for my age, but... <laughs> Let me tell you, it takes a lot of discipline and money. <laughs> I have lived long enough to know something about the world. And there, you know what we read in the news, what we see in the news? It's all the bad, the bad stuff. Um, we hear about the horrible things that happen in the world and the horrible things that people do. We never hear about all the good that goes, goes on. I was in Chile during the time of the military coup and the dictatorship, and Chile was a democratic country. Um, we had no experience in dictatorship or in terror. And in 24 hours, we had torture centers all along the country and concentration camps. People disappeared and were tortured and assassinated and uh, imprisoned. Many, many Chileans, thousands and thousands, left the country because they couldn't live uh, in terror, as I did, I, I just left too. But for every torture, there were a thousand people willing to hide somebody, to protect someone, to give refuge or asylum to someone, to risk their own lives to help another person. That's never in the news. What is in the news are the torturers, not the other ones. So I'm, I'm not I'm particularly optimistic. I'm very realistic. I know that there's a lot of good in the world. And I bet that that will win in the end. Isabel Allende. Thank you so much. Thank you and so thank much. thank you for being here.